Chapter Ten of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Blowing hot and cold. It was on the morning of the fourteenth of July that Billet opened oratorical fire against the monument which had, for five centuries, weighed like an incubus on the breast of France, a rock of Sisyphus. Less confident than the titan in her power, France had never thought to throw it off. The Bastille was the seal of feudalism on the brow of Paris. The king was accounted too good to order people to be beheaded, but he sent people into the Bastille. Once there, a man was forgotten, isolated, sequestered, buried alive, annihilated. He stayed there till the monarch remembered him. And kings have so many new matters to think of that they often forget the old ones. There were twenty other Bastilles in France, the name being general for prison, so that to this day the tramp on the dusty road speaks of the steel, without perhaps knowing that the title of ignominy referred to the great French state's prison. The fortress by the Saint-Antoine gate was the Bastille preeminently. It was alone worth all the others. Some of the prisoners were perhaps great criminals, but others, like Latude, had done nothing to merit thirty years' captivity. He had fallen in love with Lady Pompadour, the king's mistress, and wrote her a note, which caused his imprisonment for a lifetime. It was not for nothing that the Bastille was hated by the people. It was hated like a living thing, a monster, like the dragons who defy a people till a champion rises, like Belay, to show them how to attack it. Hence, one may comprehend Sebastian's hopeless grief at his father being incarcerated in the Bastille. Hence Belay's belief that he would never be liberated but by being plucked forth. Hence the popular transport may be felt when the shout rose of, Down with the Bastille! But it was, as the soldiers said, an insane project to think of capturing the king's prison castle. The Bastille had a garrison, artillery, and provisions. The walls were fifteen feet thick at the top and forty at the base. The governor was Count Lanai who had thirty thousand pounds of gunpowder in the magazine and had promised in case of annoyance to blow up the fort and with it all that part of paris nevertheless billet marched forward but he did not have to do any shouting liking his martial mien the multitude felt he was one of their kind and commenting on his words and bearing it followed him increasing like the flowing tide when Belay came out on Saint-Michel's quay, he had behind him more than three thousand men armed with hatchets, cutlasses, pikes, and guns. All were shouting, On to the Bastille! Belay was making the reflections which his knowledge of the stronghold warranted, and the vapor of his enthusiasm faded gradually. He saw clearly that the enterprise was sublime, though insane. That was easy to understand by the awed expression of those to whom he had first broached the project of taking the Bastille. 
but he was only the more fortified in his resolve. But he understood that he had to answer to these mothers and fathers, girls and children, for the lives of those whom he was leading, and that he was bound to take all the precautions possible. He commenced by collecting his followers at the city hall. He appointed lieutenants to control the flock of wolves. "'Let me see,' said Belay to himself. "'There is more than one power in France. There are two, the head of the chief city for one, and may be another yet.' He entered the city hall, asking for the chief civic magistrate. It was the traitor's provost Flacelle. "'My lord de Flacelle,' he repeated, "'a noble and no friend of the people.' "'Oh, no, he is a sensible man.' Billet went up the stairs into the antechamber where he met an usher, who came up to him to see what he wanted. "'Speech with Lord Flacelle,' replied Billet. "'Can't, sir,' answered the man. "'He is completing the list for the militia which the city is to raise.' "'Capital,' rejoined Billet. I am also organizing a militia, and as I have three thousand men ready under arms, I am worth a flacella, who is only going to get his together. Let me speak with him, and write off. If you like, just look out of the window at my soldiers. One rapid glance on the water-side was enough for the servant who hastened to notify the traitor's provost, to whom— as emphasis to his message he pointed out the army the sight inspired respect in the provost for the man commanding them he left the council and came into the anteroom perceiving billet he smiled at guessing the kind of man he must be were you wanting me he challenged if you are provost flacella responded billet yes how can i serve you Please be quick, for I am very busy. How many powers do you acknowledge in France, my lord provost? queried Billet. Hm, that is just how one looks at it, replied the politician. If you ask Bailey the mayor, he will say the National Assembly. If Lord Droy, he would say only one, the king. And which is yours between the two neither one but the nation at present rejoined flacella playing with his ruffles ah the nation repeated the farmer those gentlemen waiting below there with the wood choppers and carving knives the nation all the world to me you may be right and there was no mistake in their warranting you to me as a knowing man. "'Which of the three powers do you belong to?' inquired the trimmer, bowing. "'Faith, when there is a question for the grand spirit and the angels, I apply to the fountainhead.' "'You mean the king? What for?' to ask for the release of Dr. Gilbert, who is in the Bastille. He is one of those 
pamphleteers, I believe, said the aristocratic one saucily. A lover of mankind. That is all one. My dear Monsieur Bellay, I believe you have little chances of obtaining such a favor from the king. If he put the doctor in his Bastille, he had reasons for it. All right, returned Bellay. He shall offer his reasons, and I will match them with mine. My dear sir, the king is so busy that he will not receive you. Oh, if he will not let me in, I shall walk in without his leave or license. But you will find Lord Drawbreeze at the door, who will put you away from it. It is true he failed to do that with the National Assembly in a body, but that failure will only the more put him on his mettle, and he will take his revenge out on you. Then I will apply to the National Assembly. The way to Versailles is cut off. I will have my three thousand men with me. Have a care, my dear fellow, for you will meet on the road four or five thousand Swiss soldiers and two or three thousand Austrians who will make mincemeat of your forces. In a twinkling, you will be swallowed. What the deuce am I to do then? Do what you like, but rid me of your three thousand tatterdemalions who are cracking the flagstones with the thumps of their halberds and smoking. In the vaults are seven or eight thousand pounds of gunpowder, and a spark may send us all flying to the eternal throne. In that case, turning this over in my mind, said the farmer, I will not trouble the king or the assembly, but call in the nation and take the Bastille myself. With what? With the powder you have kindly told me is stored in your cellar. You don't tell me that, sneered Flacella. That is the very thing. The cellar keys, my lord. Hello, you are joking faltered the gentleman. "'I never joke,' returned Billet, grasping the provost by the collar with both hands. "'Let me have the keys, or I shall sling you out to my tatterdemillion, who know how to pick pockets.' Flacella turned pale as death, his lips and teeth closed so convulsively, but his voice did not alter in tone from the ironical one adopted. Do tell you the truth, sir. You do me assistance in ridding me of this combustible, he said. So I will hand you over the keys as you desire. Only do not forget that I am your first magistrate, and that if you are so unfortunate as to handle me roughly before others as you have done, catching me privately in an unguarded time, you will be hanged within the hour by the city guards. Do you persist in removing this powder? I do, and will divide it out myself right away. 
let us have this clear then i have business here for another quarter of an hour and if it makes no difference to you i should prefer the distribution to go on during my absence it has been foretold me that i should die of a violent death but i own to having a deep repugnance to being blown into the air you shall have the time but do me a favor in return come to this window that i may make you popular much obliged in what manner you shall see friends he called out as the two stood at the window you want to take the bastille ay ay replied the thousands of voices but we want powder now here is the provost who gives us all there is in the city hall cellars thank him boys long live the provost flacella forever roared the mob now my lord there is no need for me to collar you before the crowd or when alone said billet for if you do not give the powder the people or the nation as you call it will tear you to pieces here are the keys your way of asking for anything allows no refusing this encourages me said billet who was meditating hang it all have you more to ask yes if you know governor lanai of the bastille he is a friend of mine in that case you cannot wish evil to befall him to prevent that ask him to give up the prison to me or at least the prisoner gilbert you cannot hope that i have any such influence that is my lookout all i want is an introduction to him my dear monsieur billet i must warn you that if you enter the bastille it will be alone and it is likely that you will never come out again still i will give you a passport into the bastille on one condition that you do not ask me another for the moon i have no acquaintances lunatics Flazelle, shrilled a harsh voice behind the speaker if you continue to wear two faces one laughing with the aristocrats and the other smiling on the people you will be signing your own passport in a day or two to the other world whence none returns who speaks thus cried the provost turning to the ill-favored man who interrupted i marat the surgeon marat the philosopher said billet yes the same marat continued flacelle who as a medical man ought to attend to the insane he will have his hands full in france at this moment provost flacelle replied the sombre surgeon this honest citizen asks a passport to governor lanai i would point out that you are not only keeping him waiting but three thousand other honest citizens very well he shall have it going to a table he passed his hand over his forehead before writing with the other a few rapid lines in ink 
here is your introduction,' he said, presenting it to the countryman. "'I do not know how to read,' said Billet. "'Give it to me, and I will do so,' said Marat, and he saw that the pass was couched in these words. "'Governor, we, provost of traders of Paris, send you Monsieur Billet to confer on the welfare of the city. 14th July, 1789. Blacella. "'All right. Let me have it,' said Billet. "'Oh, you think it good enough?' sneered Marat. Uh, wait for the provost to add a postscript which will improve it he went over to the provost who was leaning one closed hand on the table and regarding with a scornful air not only the two men who were the jaws of a vice which enclosed him but a third whose breeches were torn standing before the doorway with a musketoon in his fist this was pitou who followed his friend and was ready to execute any order of his i suggest the following proscript to improve the paper said marat speak marat laid the paper again on the table and pointing with his crooked finger to the place for the addendum he dictated citizen billet being under flag of truce i confide his life to your honor flacella looked at the cunning face as if he had a strongest desire to smash it with a blow then do what he was counseled do you hesitate demanded the surgeon no for at the most you only ask what is fair replied the other writing as proposed still gentlemen i want you to bear in mind that i do not answer for the envoy's safety but i will said marat taking the paper from his hands for your liberty is here to answer for his your head will guarantee his there is your pass my brave billet flacella called for his coach and said loudly i suppose my friends you are asking nothing more no replied the two together am i to let him pass asked pitou my young friend said the gentleman i should like to observe that you are rather too insufficiently clad to stand guard at my door if you feel constrained to do it at least sling your cartridge box round and stand with your back to the wall am i to let him go asked pitou again looking at the speaker as if he did not relish the jest yes billet said perhaps you are wrong to let him go said marat as pitou stepped aside he was a good hostage to hold but in any case be he where he may i can lay hands on him never fear labrie said flacelle to his valet as he got into his carriage they are going to serve out the powder if the city hall goes up in an explosion i should like to be well out of the reach of splinters tell the coachman to whip up smartly the vehicle rolled under the covered way and came out on the square before some thousands of spectators the provost feared that his departure might be misrepresented and taken for a flight so he leaned out of the window and said loudly drive to the national assembly this earned him a cheer up on the balcony outside 
Marat and Belay heard the order. "'My head to his that he is not going to the assembly, but to the king,' commented the surgeon. "'Had he not better be stopped?' said the farmer. "'No,' replied the other with a hideous grin. "'Be easy. Go where he may, and however quickly, we shall travel more quickly than he. Now let us get out that powder.' "'Out with the powder!' said Belay. Flacella was right in saying there were eight thousand pounds of gunpowder in the vaults. Marat and Belay walked in the first with a lantern which they hung to a beam. Pitou mounted guard at the door. The powder was in twenty-pound kegs. Men were stationed in a line, and the kegs were passed out hand to hand. There was a brief confusion, as it was not known what was the amount, and some feared they could not get any if they did not scramble for it. But Billet had selected his lieutenants on his own model, with leg of mutton fists, and the distribution went on with much order. Each man received half a pound of powder, which would fire thirty or forty shots. But when everybody had powder, it was discovered that guns were short. Only some five hundred men had them. While the powder was being dealt out, some of the unarmed went into a council chamber where a debate was proceeding. It was about the National Guards, of which the usher had mentioned a word to Belay. It was settled that the force should consist of forty-eight thousand men. The army existed only on paper, and yet they were wrangling about who should have the command. In the midst of this dispute in rushed the weaponless men. The people had formed an army of their own, but they wanted arms. At this moment was heard the arrival of a carriage. It was Flacella's for they would not let him pass, though he had shown the royal order for him to go to Versailles, and he was brought back to the hall by main force. "'Arms! Arms!' they yelled at him as soon as they saw him. "'No arms here, but there must be some at the arsenal,' he replied. So five thousand men ran over to the arsenal to find it was bare. They returned howling to the city hall. The provost had no firearms, or he would not tell of them. He packed them off to the old Carthusian monastery, but it was empty, too. Not so much as a pocket pistol rewarded them. Meanwhile, Flacella, learning that Marat and Belay were still busy getting out the powder, suggested sending a deputation to Governor Lunet to induce him to draw in the cannon. He had made the populace howl dreadfully on the evening before by running out his guns through the embrasures. Flacella hoped that by having them taken in, the people would be satisfied and settled down. The deputation was starting when the arms-seekers came back enraged. On hearing their vociferations, Belay and Marat came up out of the underground. On a lower balcony, the provost was trying to quiet the multitudes. He proposed a resolution that the wards should forge fifty thousand pikes. The people were jumping at the offer. "'Truly this fellow is playing with us,' said the surgeon. He turned to his new friend, saying, "'Go and get to work at the Bastille. In an hour I shall be sending you twenty thousand muskets with a man to each butt.' At first blush Belay had felt great confidence in this leader whose name was so popular as to have reached him down in the country. 
he never thought to ask him how he was going to get them. He noticed a priest in the crowd working lustily, and though he had no great confidence in the cloth, he liked this one, to whom he confided the serving out of the ammunition. Marat jumped upon a stone horse-block. The uproar was indescribable. "'Silence!' he called out. "'I am Marat, and I want to speak!' Like magic, all was hushed, and every eye was turned upon the orator. "'You want arms to take the Bastille? Come with me to the Invalide, where are twenty-five thousand stand of arms, and you shall have them!' "'To the Invalide!' shouted the throngs. "'Now,' continued Marat to Belay, "'you be off to the Bastille, but stay. "'You may want help before I come.' He wrote on a leaf of his tablets, "'From Marat,' and tore this out to give it to Belay, who smiled to see that it also bore a Masonic sign. He and Marat belonged to the Order of the Invisibles.' over which presided Balsamo Cogliostro, and his work was what they were prosecuting. "'What am I to do with a paper having no name or address?' inquired the peasant. "'My friend has no address, but his name is well known. Ask the first working man you come across for the people's spokesman, Gauchon.' "'Gauchon? Fix that on your mind, Petou.' Gonchon, or Gonchonius in Latin, repeated Petou. I shall retain it. To the Invalide, yelled the voices with increasing ferocity. Be on your way, said Marat, and may the spirit of liberty march by your side. Now then, brothers, on to the Invalide, shouted Marat in his turn. He went off with more than twenty thousand men while the farmer took away some six hundred in his train, but they were armed. As the two leaders were departing, the provost appeared at the window, calling out, "'Friends, why do I see the green cockade in your hats when it is the color of Artois, though it may also be that of hope? Don't look to be sporting the colors of a prince!' "'No, no!' was the chorus, with Belay's loudest of the voices." then change it and as if you must wear a color take that good old paris town our mother blue and red my friends later general lafayette making the criticism that blue and red were the orleans colors also and perhaps having the stars and stripes of the republic he had fought for in his mind suggested the addition of white saying that the red white and blue would be a flag that would go round the world with approving words, everybody tore off the leaves and trampled them underfoot, while they called for ribbons. As if by enchantment, all windows opened and there was a rain of red and blue ribbons. But this was scant supply for a thousand only. Aprons, silk dresses, tapes, scarves, all sorts of tissues were torn into strips and twisted up into rosettes, streamers, favors, and ties with which decorations the improvised army of Belay went its road. It had recruits on the line. All the side streets of the St. Antoine, or working quarter, sent the warmest-blooded and strongest of its sons. They reached in good order Lady Gerda Street, 
where a number of folk were staring at the Bastille Towers, their red brick ruddy in the setting sun. Some were calm, some saucy. In the instant, the arrivals of reinforcements changed the multitude in aspect and mood. They were the drum corps, a hundred French guards, who came down the main avenue, and Belay's rough fellows upwards of twelve thousand strong. The timid grew bold, the calm were excited, and the pert were menacing. "'Down with the cannon!' howled twenty thousand throats as twice as many fists were shaken at the brazen pieces, stretching their necks over the crenellations. At that very time, as though the fortress governor obeyed the injunction, the gunners came out to the pieces and retired them until they were no longer visible from below. The throngs clapped hands, thinking they were a power because they had apparently been obeyed. The sentries continued to pace up and down the ramparts, with alternations of the Swiss and the veterans. After the shout of, "'Down with the cannons!' that of, "'Draw back the Swiss!' arose, in continuation of, "'Down with the Germans!' of the evening before. But the Swiss continued all the same to march up and down to meet the French Invalide. One of the shouters was impatient, and having a gun he fired on a sentinel. The bullet struck the grey stone wall a foot above the cornice of the tower, above the soldier's head. It left a white mark, but the man did not halt, did not do much as turn his head. A great hubbub rose around the firer of the first shot at the Bastille. It was the signal for a mad and unheard-of attack. The tumult had more dread in it than rage. Many did not understand that the fire on a royal prison was incurring the death penalty. End of chapter 10 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 11 of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prison Governor Belay looked at the moss-grown edifice, resembling the monsters of fable covered with scales. He counted the embrasures where the great guns might be run out again, and the wall-guns which opened their ominous eye to peer through the loopholes. He shook his head, recalling Flacella's words. "'We'll never get in,' he muttered. "'Why, never?' questioned a voice at his elbow. Turning, he saw a wild-looking beggar in rags, but with eyes glittering like stars in their hollow sockets. "'Because it is hard to take such a pile by main strength.' "'Taking the Bastille is not a matter of strength,' replied the mendicant. "'But an act of faith. Have as little faith as a grain of mustard seed, and yet you can overturn a mountain. Believe we can do it, and good night, Bastille.' "'Wait a bit,' muttered Belay, fumbling for Marat's recommendation in his pocket. "'Wait!' reiterated the vagabond, mistaking his mind. "'Yes, I can understand you being willing to wait, for you are a farmer, and have always had more than enough to make you fat. But look at my mates. 
the death's heads and raw bones surrounding us see their veins dried up count their bones through the holes in their tatters and ask them if they know what waiting in patience means this man speaks glibly but he frightens me remarked Batu. he does not frighten me replied billet then turning to the stranger he went on i say patience because in a quarter hour yet we shall do i can't call that much answered the vagrant smiling but how much better off we will be then i shall have visited the bastille by then rejoined the farmer revolutionist i shall know how strong the garrison is and the governor's intention i shall in short have a glimpse of how we can get in it will do if you see how to get out well as to that if i do not come out i know a man who will fetch me out who is he Gonchon, the people's spokesman their orator their mirabeau you don't know him said the man his eyes flashing fire so how do you make that out i am going to know him i was told that the first person i addressed on bastille square would take me to him you are on the spot lead me to him what do you want of him to hand him this paper from surgeon marat whom i have just left at the city hall whence he was marching to the invalide to get muskets for his twenty thousand men in this case hand over the paper i am gonchon friends added the vagabond as billet drew back a step here is a chap who does not know me and asks if i am really gonchon the mass burst into laughter it seemed impossible that their favorite should not be known to all long life to gonchon was the shout there you are said billet passing the paper to him mates said the popular leader having read and slapping the bearer on the shoulder this is a brother whom marat recommends so you may rely on him what is your name pal billet my name is axe do you see between us i hope we shall cut something the mob laughed at this ominous pun ay somebody will get cut was the cry how are we to set about it we are going right into there answered Gonchon, pointing to the building that is the right kind of talk said the farmer how many have you Gonchon? thirty skeletons thirty thousand of yours and twenty coming from the soldiers hospital ten thousand here more than enough to succeed if we are to succeed we shall replied the beggar king i believe you get your men in hand while i go in and summon the governor to surrender 
If he should, so much the better as it will spare bloodshed. If not, the blood will fall on his head, and it is bad luck these times. Ask those German dragoons who hewed down the inoffensive. How long will you be engaged with the governor? As long as I can make it, so as to have the castle invested thoroughly, if possible, the moment I come out, begin the onset. Enough said. You don't distrust me, said the countryman, holding out his hand to the city ragamuffin. I distrust you, replied the other, shaking with his emaciated hand the plump one of the farmer, with a vigor he had not expected. Wherefore, with a word or a sign, I could have you ground into dust, though you were sheltered by yon towers, which to-morrow will exist not. Were you protected by those soldiers, who will be our dead meat, or we shall be theirs? Go ahead, and rely on Galchon, as he does on Belay. Convinced, the farmer walked toward the Bastille gateway, with his new comrade proceeded toward the dwellings, under cheers for the people's Mirabeau. I never saw the other Mirabeau, thought Bitou, but ours is not handsome. Toward the city, the Bastille presented two twin towers, while its two sides faced where the canal runs today. The entrance was defended by an outpost house, two lines of sentinels, and two drawbridges over moats. After getting over these obstacles, one reached the government yard, where the governor's residence was. Hence, a corridor led to the ditches. Another entrance, also leading to the ditches, had a drawbridge, a guardhouse, and an iron grating as portcullis. At the first entry they stopped Billet, but he showed the Flacella introduction, and they did not turn him back. Perceiving that Pitou followed him, as he would have locked steps with him and marched up to the moon, he said, "'Stay outside. If I do not return, it will be well for somebody to be around to remind the people that I went in.' "'Just so.' How long shall I wait? An hour. What about the casket? inquired the youth. If I do not come out, if Gonchon does not take the Bastille, or if, having taken it, I am not to be found, tell Dr. Gilbert, who may be found, that men from Paris stole the box he entrusted to me five years ago, that on arriving in town I learnt he was put in the Bastille, whence I strove to rescue him, but left my skin, which was entirely at his service. "'Very good, Father Belay,' said the peasant. "'It is rather long, and I am afraid of forgetting it.' "'I will repeat it.' "'Better write it,' said a voice hard by. "'I cannot write.' rejoined Belay. I can, for I am clerk to the Chatelet prison. My name is Maillard, Stanislaus Maillard. He was a man of forty-five, tall and slim, grave, and clad in black as became such a functionary. He drew a writing-case from his pocket containing writing materials. He looks devilish, 
like an undertaker muttered pitou you say said the clerk imperturbably writing that men from paris took from your dwelling a casket entrusted to you by dr gilbert that is an offence to begin with they belong to the paris police infamous theft said maillard here is your memorandum young man he added giving the note to ange if he be slain it is to be hoped that both of us will not i will do it if you both go down thank you said belay giving his hand to the clerk who grasped it with more power than one might accredit to the meagre frame so i may rely on you as on marat and gachon such triplets are not born every day thought pitou who only said be prudent father belay do not forget that the most prudent thing in france is courage said the farmer with his blunt eloquence sometimes startling in his rough body he passed the first line of sentinels while pitou backed out at the bridge he had to parley but it was lowered on his showing his pass and the iron grating was raised behind the portcullis was the governor this inner yard was the prisoner's exercise ground eight giant towers guarded it no window opened into it the sun never penetrated its well-like circuit where the pavement was damp almost muddy here a clock the face upheld by chained captives in carving dropped the seconds like water oozing through a ceiling on the dungeon slabs at the bottom of this pit the prisoner lost in the stony gulf would glance up at the inexorable nakedness and sue to be led back into his cell governor lanai was about fifty years of age he wore a gray linsey woolsey suit this day it was crossed by a red sash of the order of saint louis and he carried a sword cane he was a bad man lingue's memoirs had just shown him up in a sad light and he was hated almost as much as the jail his father had been governor before him the officers here were on the purchase system so that the officials tried to make all the money they could squeeze out of the prisoners and their friends the governor chief warder doubled his sixty thousand franc appointments by extortion in the way of meanness lanai outdid his foregoers he may have had to pay more highly for the post than his father and so had to put on the screw to retrieve his outlay he fed his household out of the prisoners rations he reduced the firing allowance and doubled the hire of furniture maybe he foresaw that he was not to enjoy the berth long he had the right to pass a hundred casks of wine into paris free of duty he sold it to a wine shopkeeper who got in the best vintage and supplied him for the prisoners with vinegar the latter had one relief one pleasure a little garden made on a bastion where they got a whiff of sweet air and saw flowers and grass and sunshine he let this out to a truck gardener robbing the prisoners for fifty livres a year on the other hand he was yielding to rich captives he let one furnish his room in his own style and have any visitors he liked 
For further particulars, see the Bastille unveiled. For all this Lunai was brave. He might be pale, but he was calm, although the storm had raged against him from the previous evening. He felt aware of the riot becoming a revolt, for the waves broke at the foot of his castle wall. It is true that he had four cannon and a garrison of old soldiers and Swiss, with only one unarmed man confronting him, for Belay had handed his fowling-piece to Ange on entering the stronghold. He understood that a weapon might get him into trouble beyond the barrier. With a glance, he remarked everything. The governor's calm and menacing attitude, the Swiss ranked in the guard-houses, the veterans on the platforms, and the silent bustle of the artillerists, loading up their caissons with ammunition. The sentinels had their muskets on their shoulders, and their officers carried drawn swords. As the commander stood still, Belay was obliged to go to him. The grating closed behind the people's parliamentarian with an ugly grinding of metal on metal, which made him shudder to the marrow brave though he was. "'What do you want again?' challenged Lanai. "'Again?' took up Belay. "'It seems to me that this is the first time you have seen me, so that you cannot be very tired of me.' "'I was told you come from the city hall, and I have just had a deputation from there to get me to promise not to open fire. I promised that much, and so I had the guns drawn in.' "'I was on the square as you did so, and I—' "'You thought that I was giving way to the calls of the crowd?' "'It looked that way,' replied the farmer. "'Did I not tell you that they would believe me just such a coward?' said Lanai, turning round to his officers. "'Who do you come from, then?' he demanded of Belay. "'I come on behalf of the people,' rejoined the visitor proudly. "'That is all very well,' sneered Lanai, smiling. "'But you must have shown some other warrant.' for otherwise you would not have passed the first deadline of centuries. True, I have a pass from your friend Flacella. Flacella? Why do you dub him my friend? exclaimed the prison warden, looking at the speaker to read to the bottom of his mind. How do you conclude that he is a friend of mine? I supposed as much. Is that all? Uh, never mind. Let us see your safe conduct. Belay presented the paper which Lanai read more than once. In order to catch a hidden meaning or concealed lines, he even held it up to the light to see if there was secret writing. Is that all? Are you perfectly sure? Nothing by word of mouth in addition? Not a bit. Strange said Lanai, plunging his glance by a loophole on Bastille Square. "'Then tell me what you want, and be quick.' "'The people want you to give up the Bastille.' "'What did you say?' cried Lanai, turning quickly as if he must be mistaken on his hearing. "'I summon you, in the people's name, to give up the Bastille.' 
we're animals the people sneered lanai snapping his fingers what do they want with the bastille to demolish it why what the mischief is the bastille to the people is any common man ever shut up herein why the people ought to bless every stone of the bastille who are locked up here philosophers learned men aristocrats statesmen princes all the enemies of the dregs this only proves that the people are not selfish and want to do good to others it is plain that you are not a soldier my friend said the other with a kind of pity it is true and come fresh from the country for you do not know what the bastille is come with me and i will show you he is going to pull the spring of some trap which will open beneath my feet thought the adventurer and then good-bye old billet but he was intrepid and did not wince as he prepared to accede to the invitation in the first place continued lanai it is well to know that i have enough powder in the store to blow up the castle and lay half the suburbs in ashes i knew that was the tranquil reply do you see these cannon they rake this gallery which is defended by a guard-house and by two ditches only to be crossed by drawbridges lastly there is a portcullis oh i am not saying that the bastille will be badly defended but that it will be well attacked to proceed here is a postern opening on the moats observe the thickness of the walls forty feet here and fifteen above you see that though the people have nails they will break against such walls i am not saying that the people will demolish the bastille to master it but that having mastered it they will demolish it said the leader of the revolutionists let us go upstairs said the governor leading up thirty steps where he paused to say this embrasure opens on the passage by which you would be bound to come it is defended by one rampart gun but it enjoys a fair reputation you know the song oh my sweet-voiced sackbut i love your dear song certainly i have heard it but i do not think this is a time to sing it or anything else stay marshal saxe called this gun his sackbut because it sang the only music he cared anything for this is a historical fact but let us go on oh said billet when upon the tower top you have not dismounted the cannon but merely drawn them in i shall have to tell the people so the cannon were mounted here by the king's command and by that alone can they be dismounted governor lanai returned billet 
feeling himself rise to the level of the emergency. "'The true sovereign is yonder, and I counsel you to obey it.' He pointed to the grey-looking masses, spotted with blood from the night's battling, and reflecting the dying sunlight on their weapons up to the very moats. "'Friend, a man cannot know two masters,' replied the royalist, holding his head up haughtily. "'I, the governor of the Bastille, know but one, the sixteenth Louis, who put his sign-manual at the foot of the patent which made me the commander over men.' and material here are you not a french citizen demanded billet warmly i am a french nobleman said the count of lanai true you are a soldier and speak like one you are right said the gentleman bowing i am a soldier and carry out my orders well i am a citizen went on billet and as my duty as such is opposed to yours as the king's soldier one of us must die he who fulfills his orders or his duties that is likely sir so you are determined to fire on the people not unless i am fired at i pledge myself to that effect to lord provost flacella's deputation you see the guns have been retired but at the first shot i will roll one say this one forward out of the embrasure with my own hands train it and point it and fire with the slow match you see there. If I believed that, said Billet, before you could commit such a crime, I have told you that I am a soldier and know nothing outside my orders. Then look, said Billet, drawing Lanai to the gap in the battlements and pointing alternately in two different directions the main street from the town, and the street through the suburbs. Behold those who will henceforth give you orders. Lanay saw two black, dense, roaring bodies, undulating like snakes, with head and bodies in sight, but the rearmost coils still waving onwards, till lost in the hollows of the ground. All the bodies of these immense reptiles glittered with the scales. These were the two armies to which Billet had given the Bastille as the meeting-place, Marat's men and Gonchon's beggars. As they surged forward, they brandished their weapons and yelled blood-curdling cries. At the sight, Lanai lost color and said as he raised his cane, "'To your guns!' Then. Threatening Belay, he added, "'You scoundrel! To come here and gain time under pretense of a parley! Do you know that you deserve death?' Belay saw the attempt to draw the sword from the cane and pierce him, 
He seized the speaker by the collar and waistband as swift as lightning, and raising him clear off the ground, he replied, "'And you deserve to be hurled down to the bottom of the ditch to be smashed in the mud. But never mind. Thank God I can fight you in another manner.' At this instant an immense howl, a universal one, rose in the air like a whirlwind as Major Lozma appeared on the platform. "'Oh, sir, for mercy's sake,' he said to Belay, "'show yourself, for the people there believe something has happened to you, and they call for you.' Indeed, the name of Belay, set afloat by Pitou, ascended on the clamour. The farmer let go Lanai, who replaced the blade in the stick. The three men hesitated for a moment while the innumerable cries of vengeance and menace arose. "'Show yourself, sir,' said Lanai. "'Not because the noise frightens me, but to prove that I have acted fairly.' The farmer thrust his head out of the porthole, waving his hand. At this sight the populace burst with cheering. It was, in a measure, revolution standing up in Belay's stead, as this man of the lowest ranks trod the Bastille turret like a master. "'That is well, sir.' went on Lanai. Now all is ended between us. You have no further business here. They ask for you below. Go down. Belay appreciated this moderation on the part of a man who had him in his power. He went down by the same stairs, the governor following. The major remained up there as the governor had whispered some orders to him. It was evident that Count Lanai had but one wish— that the bearer of the flag of truce should be his active enemy as soon as possible. Without speaking a word, the envoy crossed the yard, where he saw the cannoneers were at their pieces, and the lint-stocks were lighted and smoking. He stopped before them. "'Friends!' he cried. "'Remember that I came to your commander to stay the shedding of blood, but that he refused me.' "'In the king's name, be off from here,' said Lanai, stamping his foot. "'Have a care,' retorted the farmer. "'I am ordered out in the king's name, but I shall return in that of the people. "'Speak out,' he added, turning to the Swiss. "'Who are you for?' The foreign soldiers were silent. Lanai pointed to the iron door, but Belay attempted a final effort. "'Governor, in the name of the nation, in the name of your brothers!' "'Brothers, is that what you call them who are bellowing down with the Bastille and death to the governor? "'They may be brothers of yours, but surely they are none of mine.' "'In humanities, then.' "'Humanity? Which urges you—' To come a hundred thousand strong against one hundred hapless soldiers immured in these walls and cut their throats? But by giving up the Bastille you save their lives. And I lose my honor. Belay was hushed, for the soldierly argument crushed him. But again he addressed the soldiers, saying, Surrender, friends, while it is yet time. 
in another ten minutes it will be too late i will have you shot unless you are out of this instantly thundered lunai as true as i am a noble billet stopped an instant folded his arms in token of defiance and crossing glances for the last time with the exasperated governor walked forth end of chapter 11 recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter 12 of taking the bastille by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain storming the bastille under the burning july sun the crowds awaited shuddering with fever Gonchon's men had joined in with Marras, the suburbs hailing each other as brothers. Gonchon was at the head of his patriots, but Marat had disappeared. The scene on the open place was terrifying. On seeing Belay, the cheering was tremendous. "'He is a brave man,' said Belay to Gonchon. "'Or rather, I should say he is stubborn. He will not surrender the Bastille.' but will sustain the siege do you think he will hold out long to death all right he shall have that but how many men will be killed by us said the farmer no doubt fearing that he had not the right usurped by generals kings and emperors those who take out licenses to kill and maim rubbish said gonchon there are too many since we have not enough for half the population is not that about the size of it boys he asked of the bystanders yes yes was the reply in sublime abnegation but the moat queried billet it need be filled up in only one place responded the beggar's leader and i calculate that we could choke it up altogether eh lads the friends answered unanimously in the affirmative have it so said billet overpowered at this moment lanai appeared on a terrace followed by major losme and two or three other officers commence shouted gonchon the governor turned his back on him Gonchon might have put up with a threat, but he would not bear contempt. He lifted his gun and fired at him. A man near him fell. Instantly a hundred, nay, a thousand gunshots sounded, as if it were awaited as a signal, and the gray towers were striped with white. A few seconds' silence succeeded this discharge, as if the assailants were frightened at what they had done. Then a gush of flame— lost in a cloud of smoke crowned the crest of one tower a detonation thundered shrieks of pain were heard in the throngs closely pressed the first cannon shot had been fired by the royalists the first blood shed the battle between people and bastille was begun an instant previously menacing the multitudes felt something like terror by defending itself with so little of its weapons, the Bastille seemed impregnable. 
in this period of concession the majority had no doubt supposed that they would always have their way that was a mistake this cannon shot fired into them gave the measure of the titanic work they had undertaken a firing of muskets well aimed from the platform immediately followed this fresh silence was broken by renewed screams groans and a few complaints but nobody thought to flee and had the thought struck anyone he must have been ashamed seeing the numbers indeed all the thoroughfares were streams of human beings the square an immense sea with each billow a human head the eyes flamed and the mouths hurled curses in a trice all the windows on the square were filled with sharpshooters who fired though out of range if a soldier appeared at a loophole or an embrasure a hundred barrels were leveled at him and the hail of bullets chipped away the edge of the stone angle shielding him but soon they were tired of firing at insensible stone they wanted the flesh to aim at and to see the blood spurt everybody shouted ideas of an assault Belay, weary of listening caught up an axe from a carpenter's hand and rushed forward in the midst of a shower of missiles striking down the men around him like a scythe lays the grain till he reached a small guardhouse before the first drawbridge while the grape-shot was hurling and whistling about him he hacked at the chains till down came the bridge during the quarter of an hour that this insane enterprise went on the lookers-on held their breath at each volley they expected to see their champion laid low forgetting their own danger they thought solely of that the audacious worker ran when the drop came down they uttered a loud a whoop and dashed into the first yard the rush was so unexpected rapid and impetuous that no resistance was made the frenzied joyful cheers announced the first advantage to lanai nobody noticed that a man had been mangled under the bridge then as if at the depth of a cavern the four guns pointed out to belay by the governor were shot off with a dreadful crash and all the outer yard was swept clear the iron hurricane cleft a long swath of blood through the mass on the path lay ten or twelve dead and double as many wounded belay had stood on the guardhouse roof to reach the chain well up he slid down where he found pitou who had reached the spot he knew not how the young man had a quick eye a poacher's habit he had seen the gunner step up to the touch-hole with the lighted matches and seizing his patron by the coat he had pulled him back behind a corner of the wall which sheltered both from the cannonade from this period on the war was real the tumult was alarming the onslaught murderous ten thousand gunshots poured upon the fort at risk of slaying the assaulters with the garrison to cap all a field-piece brought up by the french guardsmen added its boom to the cracking of small arms the frightful uproar intoxicated the amateur fighters and began to daunt the besieged who felt that they could never raise a commotion equal to this deafening them the officers saw that their soldiers were weakening they had to snatch their muskets from them and fire themselves at this juncture amid the roar of great guns and smaller ones and the shouting as the mob were rushing forward to carry away the injured and dead on litters a little body of citizens appeared calm and unarmed at the yard entrance it was a deputation of electors from the city hall 
they were sacrificing life under protection merely of the white flag before and after them to indicate they came to parley wishing to stop the effusion of blood after hearing that the attack had commenced they forced flacella to renew negotiations with the governor in the name of the city they summoned the governor of the citadel to cease firing and to receive in the place a hundred of the town guards to guarantee his safety the garrisons and the inhabitants the deputies called this out as they marched along frightened by the magnitude of the task they had set themselves the people were ready to accept the proposal seeing too the dead and wounded carried by if lenai accepted the partial defeat they would be content with a half victory at sight of them the inner yard firing ceased they were beckoned to approach and they scrambled over the corpses slipped in gore and held their hands out to the maimed under their shelter the others grouped the injured and lifeless were borne out streaking the marble flags with broad purple stains firing ceasing on the fort side belay went out to get his party to refrain at the doors he met gonchon without arms exposing his naked breast like a man inspired calm as though invulnerable what has become of the deputation he inquired it has got in replied belay cease firing it is useless he will not give in said the beggar leader with the same certainty as if he had been gifted with reading the future no matter respect the usages of war since we have become soldiers i do not mind said Conchon. elie Houlin, go he said to two men who seemed to rule the crowd together with him do not let a shot be fired till i say so at the voice the two darted away cleaving the throng and soon the sound of the musketry dying away stopped entirely during the short rest the wounded were attended to they were upwards of forty two o'clock struck they had been hammering away two hours from noon belay had returned to the front where gonchon found him his impatience was visible as he watched the iron grating what is wrong asked the farmer all is lost if the bastille is not taken in two hours was the beggar's reply how so because the royal court will learn what we are at it will send us besenval's switzers and lambesque's heavies who will help catch us between three fires belay was forced to confess the truth in the prospect at length the deputies appeared by their woe-begone aspect it was clear their errand had failed what did i tell you cried the popular orator gladly what was foretold by balsamo and cogliostro will come to pass the accursed fortress is doomed to arms boys to arms he yelled without waiting for the deputies to relate their doings the commandment refuses in fact scarcely had the governor read flacella's letter introducing the party than he brightened up in the face and exclaimed instead of yielding to the proposition you parisian gentlemen wanted the fight and it is too late to draw back the citizens had protested 
and persisted in picturing the horrors which the defense would entail. But he would heed nothing, and finishing by saying to them what he had told Belay a couple of hours anteriorly, "'Be gone, or I will have you shot!' The citizens were glad to get out of it. Lanai took the offensive this time. He was wild with impatience. Before the deputation crossed the threshold, the sack-butt of Marshal Sachs played its tune. Three men fell, one dead and two wounded, the latter being a French guardsman, and the other one of the flag of truce-bearers. At sight of this victim, whose errand made him sacred, carried away smothered in blood, the fury of the numbers was exalted once more. Gonchon's aide-de-camps had returned to take their places by his side, but each had run home to change his dress. Elie had been the Marquis Conflans, running footman, and his livery resembled a Hungarian officer's uniform. Elie put on the uniform he had worn when an officer of the Queen's own regiment, and this gave more confidence to the masses with the thought that the army was on their side. The firing recommenced more fiercely than before. At this, Major Lozma approached his superior. He was a brave and honorable soldier, but he had some manhood left him, and he saw with pain what had happened and foresaw with more pain what would occur. "'You know we have no food,' he said. "'I know that,' answered Lanai. "'And we have no order to hold out?' "'I ask your pardon, military governor of the Bastille, but I am the governor of it in all respects. My order is to shut the doors, and I hold the keys.' "'My lord, keys are to open locks as well as fasten them. Have a care that you do not get the garrison massacred without saving the castle. That will be two triumphs for the revolters in one day. Look at the men we kill. They spring up again from the pavement.' This morning only three thousand were there. Three hours ago there were six. Now they are over sixty thousand, and tomorrow they will number a hundred thousand. When our cannon are silenced, and that will be the upshot, they will be strong enough to pull down the Bastille with their bare hands. You do not speak like the military governor of the Bastille, Major Lozma. I speak like a Frenchman, my lord. I say that his majesty, having given us no special order, and the provost of the traitors, having made us a very acceptable proposition, to introduce a hundred civil guards into the castle, you might avoid the misery I foresee by acceding to provost Flacella's proposition. In your opinion, the city of Paris is a power we ought to obey? Yes, in the absence of special royal order. Then read, Major Lozma, said the prison chief, leading his lieutenant aside into a corner. On the small sheet of paper which he let him read was written, Hold out firmly. I will amuse the Parisians with cocades and promises. Before day is done, Bezenval will send you reinforcements. Flacella. How did this advice reach you? inquired the major in the letter the deputies carried they thought they were bearing a desire for the bastille to be surrendered and it was the order to defend it that they handed me the major bent his head 
go to your post and do not quit till i command you sir continued lanai lozma obeying he coldly folded up the paper replaced it in his pocket and went over to the cannoneers to advise them to aim true and fire low they obeyed like the major but the fortalice's fate was settled no human power could delay the accomplishment to every cannon shot the reply was we mean to have the bastille while voices claimed it arms were not idle patou's and belay's arms and voices were among those asking most energetically and working most efficaciously each worked according to his character courageous and confident as the bulldog belay had run at the enemy heedless of shot and steel Pitou, prudent and circumspect as the fox endowed to the highest degree with self-preservation utilized all his faculties to watch danger and anticipate it his sight knew the most deadly embrasures and distinguished the least move of the bronze tube to enter it he could guess the exact moment when the rampart gun was about to fire through the portcullis his eyes having done their office he made his limbs work for their owner down went his shoulders and in went his chest so that his frame offered no more surface than a board seen edgewise in these moments of the filling out pitou thin only in the legs nothing remained but the geometrical expression of a straight line he chose a spot where the masonry shaped out cavities and projections so that his head was shielded by a stone his heart by another and his knees by still another slab nowhere could a mortal wound be got in on him he fired a shot now and then to relieve his feelings and because belay told him to blaze away but he had nothing but wood and stone before him for his part he kept begging his friend not to expose himself to the firing there goes the sackbut or i hear a hammer coming down despite these injunctions the farmer executed prodigies of daring and energy all in pure waste till the idea struck him to go along the woodwork of the bridge and chop the chains of the second one as he had done with the first ange howled for him to stay and seeing that howls were useless he followed him from cover saying dear master belay your wife will be a widow if you get killed the swiss thrust their guns through the loopholes by which the sackbut was fired to try to pick off the daring fellow who was making the chips fly off their bridge belay called on his single gun to answer the sackbut but when the latter fired the other artillerists retreated and the farmer was left alone to serve the cannon this again drew patou out of his refuge master he sued in the name of catherine think if you are done for that catherine will be an orphan belay yielded to his plea and because he had a new idea he ran out on the square hallowing a cart two carts added patou thinking you cannot have too much of a good thing ten carts were immediately trundled through the multitude dry hay and straw shouted belay straw and hay repeated patou like a flash two hundred men brought each a truss of straw or half a bale of hay others brought dry fodder on litters they were obliged to call out that they had ten times more than was wanted in an hour they would have smothered the bastille belay put himself in the rails of a bush-cart laden with hay and pushed it before him instead of dragging it 
Pitou did the same with another, without knowing why, but thinking the farmer's example was worthy of imitation. Elie and Houlin guessed what the farmer proposed. They supplied themselves with carts and pushed them into the prison-yard. Scarcely did they enter, then small shot and canister received them, but the hay and straw deadened the bullets and slugs, and only a few rattled on the wheels and shafts. None of the assailants were touched. As soon as this discharge was fired, two or three hundred musketmen dashed on behind the cart-pushers and lodged under the sloping shed of the bridge itself, under cover of the moving breastwork. There Belay pulled out a scrap of paper and flint and steel. He wrapped up a pinch of gunpowder in the paper, struck a light and ignited it and shoved the flaring piece into the heap of hay. Others took lighted wisps and scattered the flames. It caught the pent-roof, and the four blazing carts set fire to beams high up and sneaked along the bridge supports. To put out the fire, the garrison would have to come out, and to show oneself was to court death. The glad cheer started in the yard, was caught up on the square where the smoke was seen above the towers. Something fatal to the besieged was surmised to be going on. Indeed, the red-hot chains drew out and snapped from the ring-bolts. The half-broken bridge fell smoking and sending up sparks. The firemen came up with their engines, but the governor ordered them to be fired upon, though the prison might be thus burned over the garrison's heads. The old French soldiers refused. The Swiss were willing, but as they were not artillerists, they could not work the carriage-guns. These had to be abandoned. On the other side, seeing that the cannonade ceased, the French guards resumed their field-piece work, and with the third ball sent the portcullis flying. The governor had gone upon the tower to see if the promised succor was arriving when he suddenly found himself enwrapped in smoke. He ran downstairs and ordered the gunners to keep up the firing. The refusal of the French veterans exasperated him. On hearing the portcullis smashed in, he recognized that all was lost. He was fully aware that he was hated. He guessed that there was no safety for him. During the whole of the action he had cherished the thought of burying himself under the ruins of his castle. As soon as he acknowledged that all resistance was useless, he snatched a lintstock from the artillerist and precipitated himself toward the powder magazine. "'The powder! The powder!' shrieked twenty terrified voices. On seeing the governor with the burning match, they divined his intention. Two soldiers crossed their bayonets before his breast at the very instant when he opened the ammunition storeroom door. "'You may kill me,' he said, "'but you cannot do that so quickly that I shall not have had time to toss this brand into one of those open kegs. Then all of us, besieged and besiegers, go up!' The soldiers stopped with the steel at his breast, but he was still their commander and commanded, for he held the lives of all in his hands. His movement riveted everybody to their place. The assailants perceived that something extraordinary was going on. They peered into the yard and saw the governor threatening and being threatened. "'Hark to me,' said he, "'as true as I have death in my grasp for all of you, I will fire the powder if one of you dare step within this yard.' The hearers might fancy the earth quaked beneath their feet. "'What do you want?' Several voices gasped with the accent of a panic. 
an honorable capitulation as the assailants could not fully comprehend the extent of lunai's despair and did not believe his speech they began to enter belay at the head but he suddenly turned pale and trembled for he had thought of dr gilbert it little mattered to the farmer whether the bastille was torn down or blown up but at any price the arch-revolutionist must live the pupil of balsamo his successor perhaps at the head of the invisibles stop shouted belay for the sake of the prisoners elie and hulin and their men who had not shrank from death on their own behalf recoiled white and trembling like he had what do you want they demanded of the governor renewing the question as garrison had put to him everybody must retire replied count lanai i will listen to no proposition while there is an intruder inside the bastille walls but you will take advantage of our withdrawal to repair damages remonstrated belay if the capitulation be refused you will find things in the same condition you there i at this door on the faith of a nobleman some shook their heads is there any here who doubt a nobleman questioned the count no no nobody rejoined five hundred voices bring me pen ink and paper continued the governor that is well he went on as his orders were executed now retire he said to the assaulters billet ellie and hulin set the example and all followed them lanai laid the match by his side and began to write the terms of surrender on his knee the french veterans and the swiss aware that their safety was at stake silently looked at him in superstitious terror when he turned before writing the document out fair all the yards were clear in a twinkling all the concourse outside had learnt what was proceeding as lozma had said it was the population which issued from beneath the flagstones and pavement not only workmen and beggars the homeless and the imperfectly clad but citizens of the better classes not only men but women and children each had a weapon and uttered a war cry from spot to spot amid groups was seen a woman dishevelled wringing her hands and waving her arms howling curses at the giant of stone it was a mother a wife or a sweetheart whose dearest one had been incarcerated in its flanks but since a short space the giant had ceased to vomit flame and scowl in the smoke the fire was extinct and the whole mute as a tomb on the blackened walls the bullet grazes stood out white and were above count everybody had wanted to leave his mark on the granite brow of his personification of tyranny they could hardly believe that the bastille was about to be turned over to them that its governor would surrender in the midst of this general doubt as none ventured to congratulate another and all waited in silence a letter stuck on a spear-point was seen thrust through a loophole between the despatch and the besiegers was the great moat deep and wide and full of water belay called for a plank but 
three were too short, and the fourth, while long enough, was ill-adjusted. Still, he balanced himself as well as he could, and unhesitatingly risked himself on the bending bridge. All in dumbness fixed their eyes on the man who seemed suspended over the stagnant water, while Pitou, quivering, sat on the brink and hid his face. All of a sudden, when Belay was two-thirds over, the plank shifted, and throwing up his arms, he fell in the moat where he sank out of sight. Pitou uttered a roar and dived after his master like a newfoundland dog. A man went right out on the plank without hesitation, choosing the same road as Belay. It was Stanislas Maillard, the prison clerk. On reaching the point beneath which he saw two men struggling, he looked, but seeing that they could swim ashore, he continued his way. In half a minute he was across and took the letter off the pike. With the same tranquil nerve and steadiness of gait, he passed back over the plank. But at the very second when all crowded round him to read the message, a hail of bullets rained down from the battlements at the same time as a tremendous report was heard. From all breasts a cry arose, one announcing that the people meant to have revenge. "'Trust the tyrants again!' said Conchon. Nobody cared any more about capitulations, the powder, the prisoners, or himself. Nothing was wanted but retaliation, and the besiegers strewed into the yards not by hundreds but by thousands. The only thing preventing them entering still faster was not the muskets, but the narrowness of the doorways. On hearing the firing, the two soldiers, who had not gone away from their commander, jumped at him, and a third set his foot on the slow match and crushed it out. Lanai drew the sword hidden in his cane and tried to stab with it, but it was wrenched off from him and broken while in his grip. He was convinced that he could do no more, and he waited for his doom. The mobs rushing in met the soldiers, holding out their hands to them, and so the Bastille was not taken under a surrender, but by assault. This came from the royal castle having ceased to enclose inert matter. Latterly, the king had shut up human brain there, and the spirit had burst the vessel. The people entered at the breach. As for the treacherous volley fired in the midst of silence during the suspension of hostilities, an unforeseen, impolitic, and deadly aggression. It will never be known who gave the order, inspired it, and accomplished it. There are moments when the future of a nation is exactly poised in the scales of fate. One of the plates bears up the other, even while each party thinks his side will make the other kick the beam. An invisible hand has flung into the dish a dagger or a pistol, and all changes. The only cry heard is, Woe to the vanquished! End of chapter 12 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 13 of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Down in the Dungeons While the multitude poured, roaring with delight and anger at the same time, into the yards of the prison, two men were floundering in the ditch, Billet and Pitou. 
The latter was keeping up the other whom no bullet or blow had struck, but the fall had a trifle stunned him. Ropes were thrown to them and poles thrust down. In five minutes they were rescued and were hugged and carried in triumph, muddy though they were. One gave Belay a drink of brandy, another crammed the younger peasant with bread and sausage, a third dried them off and led them into the sunshine. Suddenly an idea, or rather a memory, crossed the good farmer's mind. He tore himself from the friendly arms and ran toward the fort. "'The prisoners! Help the prisoners!' he shouted. "'Yes, the prisoners!' repeated Batu, darting into the tower after his leader. Only thinking of the jailers, the mob now shuddered on remembering the captives. The cries were reiterated. A fresh flood of assailants burst any remaining barriers, and seemed to enlarge the flanks of the prison to expand it with liberty. A frightful scene was presented to Belay and his friend. The mob crowded into the court, enraged, drunken, and furious. The first soldier falling underhand was torn to pieces. Gonchon looked on quietly, no doubt thinking that popular wrath is like a great river doing more mischief if one tries to dam it than if letting it make its course. On the contrary, Ellie and Houlon leaped in between defenders and attackers. They prayed and supplicated, vociferating the holy lie that the soldiers were promised their lives. Belay and Petou's arrival was reinforcement to them. Belay, whom they were revenging, was alive, not even hurt. The plank had swerved underfoot, and he was clear with a mud-bath, and that was all. The Swiss were most detested, but they were not to be found. They had time to put on overalls and smock-frocks of dull linen, and they passed off as servants. With sledges the invaders broke the captive images on the clock-face. They raced up to the turret-tops to kick the cannon which had belched death on them. They laid hands on the stones and endeavored to dislodge them. When the first of the conquerors were seen on the battlements, all without, below, a hundred thousand or so, cast up an immense clamor. It spread over Paris and flew over France like a swift-winged eagle. The Bastille is taken. At this news, hearts melted, eyes were moist with tears of gladness and hands clasped, no longer were there opposition parties or inimical castes, for all Parisians understood that they were brothers, and all men that they were free. A million of men mutually embraced. Belay and Patou wanted no part in the rejoicing. They sought the liberation of the prisoners. Traversing Government Yard, they passed near a man in grey clothes, calmly leaning on a gold-headed cane. It was the governor, quietly waiting for his friends to save him, or his foes to lay him low. Bellet recognized him at sight and uttered an outcry. He walked straight up to him. Lanai knew him again, also, but folded his arms and looked at Bellet as much as to say, "'It is you who deal me the first stab?' "'If I speak to him,' thought the farmer, "'they will know him.' and then he will be killed. Yet how would he find Dr. Gilbert in this chaos? How wrest from the Bastille the grim secret enshrouded in its womb? 
Lanai understood all this heroic hesitation and scruple. "'What do you want?' asked he in an undertone. "'Nothing,' rejoined Belay, pointing out that the doorways are doorless all the way to the street. "'Nothing. But I should like to find Dr. Gilbert.' "'No. Three Bertaudier Tower.' replied the count in a gentle voice, almost softened, but he would not flee. At this juncture a voice behind Billet pronounced these words, Aloha! Here is the governor! The voice was as emotionless as though spoken by no being of this world, but every syllable was a dagger-blade cruelly dug into Lanai's bosom. The voice was Gonchon's. At the denunciation, as if from an alarm-bell ringing, all the men athirst for vengeance started and turned their flaring eyes on Lanai, at whom they flung themselves. "'He is lost, unless we can save him,' said Belay to Elie and Houlin. "'Help us,' they answered. "'I must stay here, as I have a task to do.' In a flash— Lanai was taken up by numerous hands and carried out. Elie and his comrade hurried after, calling, "'Stop! He was promised his life for surrendering!' This was not true, but the sublime falsehood rushed from both of the noble hearts. In a second the governor, followed by the pair, disappeared in the corridor opening on the square, amid shouts, "'Take him to the city hall!' As a living prey, Lanai was, in the eyes of most, equal to the dead prey, the prison overrun. Strange was the sight of this sad and silent edifice, for for centuries, threaded solely by the warden and his turnkeys, become the strolling ground of any tattered emelion. The crowd roamed over the garden, up and down the stairs, buzzing like a swarm of bees and filling the granite hive with bustle and uproar. Billet, for an instant, watched Lanai, carried rather than dragged, seeming to hover over the multitude. But he was gone in a space. Billet sighed, and looking round him and seeing Patou, said as he darted toward a tower, "'The third Bertardier!' A trembling jailer was in the way. "'Here you are, Captain,' he answered. "'But I have not the keys. They were taken from me.' "'Brother, lend me your axe,' said Belay of a neighbor. "'I give it to you, for it is not wanted now. We have taken the old den.' Grasping the weapon, Belay dashed into a stairway, conducted by the warder. The latter stopped before a door. "'This is number three, Bertardier Tower,' said he. "'Is the prisoner here, Dr. Gilbert?' don't know the names only put here a few days ago don't know well i shall rejoined the farmer attacking the door with the axe it was of oak but the splinters flew freely under the chops of the vigorous yeoman in a short time one could peep into the room billet looked in at the cleft in the beam of light from a grated window in the yard a man was visible in the cell, standing a little back, holding one of his bed-slates. He was in the attitude of defense, ready to knock down any one intruding. 
spite of his long beard pale face and his hair being close-cropped Bellet recognized gilbert doctor doctor is it you it is Bellet who calls your friend are you here Bellet? here yes yes that's Bellet right there shouted the crowd we are here in the bastille for we have taken it you are free the bastille is taken and i am free repeated the doctor running both hands through the bars of the door he shook it so forcibly that the hinges and lock bolts seemed likely to shoot out of the pockets one of the split panels shattered by Bellet, fell clean out and was left in the prisoner's hands wait wait said the rescuer seeing that such another exertion would exhaust the man's powers too much excited wait he redoubled his blows through the gap the prisoner could be seen fallen on his stool pale as a spectre and incapable of moving the broken beam again with which he had tried like a samson to shake the bastille down Bellet, he kept on saying and me with him doctor poor Petou, whom you must remember from having placed me for board and lodging at aunt angelique's i came along to get you out but i cannot get through that crack objected the prisoner we will widen it cried the bystanders in a common effort each brought his effort to bear while one inserted a crowbar between the wall and the door jamb another got a purchase on the lock with the lever and others put their shoulders to the woodwork the oak gave a last crack and the stones scaled off so that by the removed door and the crumbling stone the torrent plunged within the prison gilbert was soon in the arms of his friends gilbert who was a little peasant boy on the tavernay estate where he conceived an undying and lifelong passion for his master's daughter andrea was now a man of thirty-five philip of tavernay who tried to kill him in a cave in the azores islands because he had accomplished the love design of his existence in giving andrea the title of mother to little sebastian gilbert would not recognize him he left bathed in blood pale without sickliness with black hair and steady through animated eyes one could tell that he like his teacher balsamo cogliostro was endowed with the power of magnetism as he could now mesmerize andrea he could mentally master most men when his gaze was idle it did not wander in vacancy but retired into his meditations and became the gloomier and deeper his nose was straight coming down from the brow in a direct line it surmounted a disdainful lip showing the dazzling enamel of his teeth commonly he was clad with quaker-like simplicity but it approached elegance from its extreme primness his stature above the middle height was well formed and we have seen how strong he could be when he roused all his nervous force although a week in jail he had taken the usual care of himself though his beard had grown long it was combed out and set off his clear skin indicating by its length not his neglect but the refusal of a razor or a shave after thanking Bellet and Petou, he turned to the crowd in the cell. As if he recovered all his command in a twinkling, he said, Then 
the long-looked-for day has come. I thank you all, my friends, and I thank the eternal spirit which watches over the liberty of peoples. He held out his hands, but they shrank from touching them, so lofty was his glance, and his voice so dignified as of a superior man. Leaving the dungeon, he walked out before them all, leaning on the farmer and the country boy. After Gilbert's first impulse of gratitude and friendship, a second had established the first distance between him and the subordinates. At the door, Gilbert stopped, dazzled by the sunshine. He stopped, folded his arms, and said as he gazed upwards, Hail! Beautiful liberty! I saw you spring into life in the new world, and we are old friends and battlefield comrades. Hail! The smile he wore showed that the cheers of a free people were not a novelty to him. Belay, he said after collecting his thoughts. Have the people overcome despotism? They have. And you came to liberate me? How did you know of my arrest? Your son told me this morning. Poor Emile Sebastian! Have you seen him? Is he at peace in the school? I left him being carried to the sick ward as he had a fit. He was wild, because we would not let him have a share in the fighting to get you out. The physician smiled, for the boy was his hope, and had borne himself as he hoped. I said that as you were in the Bastille, we would have to take the Bastille, went on the farmer, and now we have taken it. But that is not all. The casket is stolen, which you entrusted to me. Stolen? By whom? By men wearing black, who broke into the house under guise of seizing the pamphlet which you sent me, locking me up in a room they searched the whole house and found the casket yesterday then there is a coincidence between my arrest and this purloining the same person caused this arrest and abstraction i must know whom where are the books of the jail demanded the doctor turning round to the jailer who kept close in government yard replied he oh master let me go with you or say good word to these gentlemen who will otherwise knock me about just so replied gilbert friends i want you not to do any harm to this poor fellow who only did his duty in opening doors and locking them he was always gentle with the prisoners good cried the voices all around as they surrounded him in respect mingled with curiosity. He need not be scared, but can come along. "'Thank you, sir,' said the jailer. "'But we had better make haste, for they are burning the papers.' "'Then there is not an instant to be lost,' cried the physician. "'To the archives!' He darted off toward the office, drawing the mob with him, at the head of which still marched Belay and Pitou. End of chapter 13. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.
Chapter Fourteen of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Triangle of Liberty. At the door of the register hall, they had made a bonfire of the documents. One of the first feelings of the masses after a victory is for destruction, unfortunately. The memorials of the prison were turned out of the large room, where the records of all the prisoners since a hundred years back were kept higgledy-piggledy. The mob shut up the papers with anger, seeming to think that they gave the prisoners freedom by annulling the warrants. Gilbert, assisted by Petou, looked at the registers, but the present years was missing. Though a calm and cool man, the doctor stamped his foot with impatience while he turned blanched. At this, Petou spied a boy, such a little hero as always pops up in the reign of King Mob, who was carrying on his head the volume to throw it into the fire. With his long legs he soon overtook him. It was the register for 1789. The deal did not take long, for Ange announced himself as one who had captured the place and explained that a prisoner wanted the book. The boy gave it up with the comforting remark that there were lots more where it came from. Petou opened the book, and on the last page he saw the entry. This day, ninth of July, 1789, enters Dr. Gilbert, a most dangerous writer of public matters and philosophy. Keep in solitary confinement. He carried the register to the physician. It was, of course, what he sought. Looking whence the order emanated, he exclaimed, the warrant to arrest me signed by my friend necker then there must be some trick played on him necker your friend ejaculated the crowd for the name had great influence over them yes my friend and i upheld him i am convinced that he is ignorant of my being in prison but i will go and find him and he is not at versailles said billet but at brussels he is exiled his daughter lives in the country out by saint ouen suggested one of the throng whom gilbert thanked without seeing who it was friends he said in the name of history who will find the condemnation of tyranny in these papers cease such devastation i entreat you demolished the Bastille, stone by stone, till not a trace remains. But respect documents and books, for the light of the future is in them. The multitude had scarce heard the rebuke, but its high intelligence gauged he was correct. "'The doctor is right,' cried a hundred voices. "'No more spoiling. Let us take these papers to the city hall.' A fireman who had brought a small hand-engine into the fort, with half a dozen comrades, directed the horse-butt at the fire which was about to repeat a conflagration of books like that of Alexandria, and they put it out. "'At whose request were you arrested?' inquired the farmer. "'Just what I was looking for, but the name is blank. I shall learn,' he added, after brief meditation." Tearing out the leaf concerning himself, he folded it up and pocketed it. "'Let us be off, friends,' said he. "'We have no farther business here.' 
it is easier to say let us go than manage it remarked the countryman indeed the concourse entering the castle by all openings choked up the doorways they had liberated eight prisoners including gilbert four excited no interest they had been locked up on a charge of forging a bank draft without any evidence which leads to the premise that it was a false charge they had been in jail only two years the next was count solange a man of thirty who was in rapture he hugged his liberators exalted their victory and related his captivity arrested in seventeen eighty two and shut up in vincennes castle on a blank warrant obtained by his father he had been transferred to the bastille where he remained five years without having seen a magistrate or being examined once his father had died two years back and nobody asked after him had not the bastille been captured he would probably have died there unasked for white was another wretch he was sixty years old and jabbered incoherent words with a foreign accent to the many questions he replied that he was ignorant how long he had been detained and for what cause he remembered he was a kinsman of chief of police sartina a turnkey recalled having seen lord sartina enter white's cell and force him to sign a power of attorney but the prisoner had utterly forgotten the incident tavernier was the oldest of all he had been ten years imprisoned in another state's prison before coming to the bastille for thirty years he was in his ninetieth year white in beard and hair his eyes were so used to the gloom that he could not bear the light when they broke open his dungeon he did not understand what they wanted to do when they spoke of liberty he shook his head when finally they said the bastille was taken by the people he cried what will louis the fifteenth say white was crazed but tavernier was an idiot the delight of the rest was terrible to view so close was it to alarm it called for vengeance two or three were almost ready to expire amid the hubbub of thousands of voices having never heard two speaking at the same time while in prison they had become accustomed to these slow and odd sounds of wood cracking with dampness or the death-watch cricket or the spider weaving its web or the frightened rat gnawing his majesty's prison walls as gilbert appeared the resolution was unanimously adopted that the rescued ones should be carried in triumph through the town gilbert wished to elude this ovation but he could not do so as he was recognized as well as Belay and his comrade to the city hall shouted everybody gilbert was taken up on the shoulders of twenty fellows in vain did gilbert resist and Belay and Petou shower punches and cuffs on their brothers-in-arms joy and enthusiasm had made the people's hide tough fisticuffs digs with the elbow or thrusts with musket-butts all seemed soft as strokings and only enhanced their glee a spear was stuck in a table and gilbert placed on it to be carried thus he was above the level of the sea of heads undulating from the bastille to st john's arcade a stormy sea which transported the delivered captives amid billows crested with bloody swords bayonets and pikes at the same time 
another sea roiled terribly and irresistibly a group closely serried around the prisoner lunai around him the shouts were as loud and hearty as for the liberated prisoners but they were of death not of triumph gilbert from his elevated stand did not lose an incident of the horrible occurrence alone among all his fellow-captives he enjoyed the fullness of his faculties because five days imprisonment was but a black speck in his career his eye had not time to be dimmed by the bastille's darkness usually fighting makes men hard-hearted only during the action men coming out of the fire with their own lives intact feel kindly toward their foes but in great popular uprisings such as france had seen many from the jacquerie or the peasants outbreak in thirteen fifty eight those whom fear kept in the rear during the conflict but were irritated by the turbulence are ferocious cowards who seek after the victory to redden their hands in the blood of those they dared not face in combat they take their share in the reprisal since he was dragged out of his castle the march of the governor was a dolorous one Ellie, protected by his uniform and the part he had taken in the assault, marched at the head, having taken Lunai's life under his special care. He was admired for the manner in which he had borne himself. On his sword-point he carried the letter which Lunai had passed out of the prison loophole to be taken by Maillard. After him came the tax commissioner's guards, carrying the keys of the royal fortress, then Maillard bearing the Bastille flag then a young man who bore on a pike the bastille's rules and regulations in odious rescript by virtue of which many a tear had been made to flow lastly came the governor protected by hulin and three or four others but almost covered in with shaking fists flourished blades and brandished pike heads beside this column almost parallel rolling up st antoine street leading from the main avenue to the river Zen, was to be distinguished another no less awful and menacing dragging major lozma whom we saw struggle against his superior for a space but succumb under the determination to resist to the last he was a kind good and brave man who had alleviated many miseries within the jail but the general public did not know this on account of his showy uniform many took him to be the governor the latter, clothed in grey, having torn off the embroidery and the St. Louis scarf, was shielded by some doubt from those who did not recognize him. This was the spectacle which Gilbert beheld with his gloomy, profound, and observant glance, amid the dangers foreseen by his powerful organization. On leaving the Bastille, Houlin had rallied his own friends, the surest and most devoted, the most valiant soldiers of the day these four or five tried to second his generous design of shielding the governor impartial history had preserved the names of three arne charlat and le pain these four with houlin and maillard in advance attempted to defend the life for which a hundred thousand were clamoring a few french grenadiers whose uniform had become popular within three days clustered round them they were venerated by the mob as long as his generous defenders could do it they beat off the blows aimed at count lanai but he could not evade the hooting the insults and the curses at jouy street corner 
all the grenadiers had been brushed aside not the crowd's excitement but the calculation of murderers may have had something to do with this gilbert had seen them plucked away as beads are flipped off a string he foresaw by this that the victory would be tarnished by bloodshed he tried to get off the table but iron hands held him to it in his impotence he sent billet and Pitou to the defence of the governor and obeying his voice they made efforts to reach the threatened one his protectors stood in strong need of reinforcement chola who had eaten nothing since the evening before fell with exhaustion though he tried to struggle on had he not been assisted he would have been trodden under foot his falling out of line made a breach in the living wall a man darted in by this crevasse in the dike and clubbing his musket delivered a crushing blow at the governor's bared head lapine saw the mace descending and had time to throw his arms around lunai and receive the blow on his own forehead stunned by the shock and blinded by the blood he staggered back and when he recovered he was twenty paces apart from the prisoner this was the moment when billet fought his way up towing Petou after him like a steamship of war bringing up a sailing man-of-war into action he noticed that what marked lanai out was his being without a hat he snatched off his own and put it on the count's head the latter turned and recognized him i thank you he said but whatever you do you cannot save me if i can get you inside the city hall i will answer for all said Houlin. yes but can you do it said the victim god helping us will try it they might hope this as they reached the city hall square it was packed with men with their arms bared to the pit waving swords and spears the rumor had run along that they were bringing the bastille governor and his major and they were waiting for them like a pack of wolfhounds held back from breaking up the quarry as soon as they saw the party they rushed at it Houlin saw that this was going to be the supreme peril and final struggle if he could only get the governor up the steps and inside the building he would save him help Hilly, and the yard all men who hold our honor dear he shouted elie and maillard forged onward but the mob closed in behind them and they were isolated the crowd saw the advantage it had won and made a furious effort like a gigantic boa it round its coils round the knot billet was taken off his feet and swept away with Petou, who stuck to him the same whirlwind made houlin reel on the steps where he fell he rose but was forced down anew and lanet fell with him this time he stayed down up to the last he did not murmur or beg for mercy but he cried in a hoarse voice do not at least keep me lingering tigers that you are slay me outright never had he issued an order executed more promptly than this prayer in one instant armed hands flourished round his stooped head fists and plunging blades were seen and then a head severed from the trunk rose disgustingly on the tip of a pike it had preserved its cold and scornful smile this was the first head lopped off by the revolution gilbert had foreseen the atrocity he had tried again to dart to the rescue but a hundred hands held him down 
he turned his head and sighed. This head was lifted with its eyes glaring up to the window where Flacella stood, surrounded and supported by the electors, as if to bid him a last farewell. It would be hard to say which was the paler, his face or the corpse's. All at once a deafening uproar burst from where the headless body lay. In searching it, in the vest pocket, was found the note addressed to him by the provost of the traitors, the one he had shown to Lozma. It will be remembered as in these terms. Hold out firmly. I will amuse the Parisians with cockades and promises. Before day is done, Bezenval will send you reinforcements. Flacella. A horrible yell of blasphemy rose from the pavement to the window where the writer stood. Without divining the cause, he understood the threat, and threw himself back. But he had been seen, and was known to be within. The rush for him was so universal that even the bearers of Dr. Gilbert left him to join the hunters. Gilbert sought to enter with them to protect Flacella. He had not run up three steps before he felt himself pulled back by the coat-skirts. He turned to shake off the hand, but saw they were of Belay and Pitou. From the higher standpoint he overlooked the square. "'What is going on over there?' he inquired, pointing toward a spot of commotion. "'Come, doctor, come,' said the two countrymen together. "'The butchers,' said the doctor. At that instant, Major Lozma fell, struck down by a hatchet. In their hatred, the people confounded the persecutor of the prisoners with the merciful warden. "'Let us be gone,' said the physician. "'For I begin to be ashamed that such murderers let me out.' "'Do not say that, doctor.' reproved Belay. Those who stormed the Bastille are not the cutthroats yonder. As they descended the steps which he had mounted to try to help Flacella, the throng which had flowed through the doorway was hurled forth. In the midst of the battling gathering, one man was struggling. "'Take him to the Palais Royal!' vociferated the thousands. "'Yes, my friends, yes, my good friends!' "'To the Palais Royal!' gasped this wretch. But the human inundation rolled toward the river as though it intended to drown him. "'Another they mean to murder!' shouted Gilbert. "'Let us try to save him at any rate!' But he had hardly got the words out of his mouth before a pistol-shot resounded. Flacella disappeared in the smoke. Gilbert covered his eyes, cursing the multitude great, but unable to remain pure, and sullying the victory by a triple murder. When he took his hands from his eyes, he beheld three heads on pike-points. Flacellus, Lanai's, and Losmus. One rose on the city hall steps, another in the mouth of Tissanderie Street, and the last in Pelletier Street, so that the trio formed a triangle. He remembered the sign in the Order of the Invisibles. "'Oh, Balsamo,' he muttered. 
is this the emblem of liberty and sighing he fled up vanahy street dragging billet and pitou with him end of chapter fourteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter fifteen of taking the bastille by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Young Visionary Meeting with a public conveyance, the doctor got into it with Billet and Pitou, and they went to Louis the Great College, where Sebastian was still in the sick ward. The principal received the doctor with a deep regard, as he knew him to be the foremost pupil of the physicians and chemists Cabani and Condorcet. He imparted his fears as well to the doctor as to the parent of his pupil, that the boy was too much given to moody fits. "'You are right,' said Gilbert. "'Gravity in my boy is a token of lunacy or weakness.' While Pitou was being refreshed in the principal's residence, and Belay shared a bottle with the gentleman himself, the physician conferred with his son. "'I ask you about your health.' said the father to the pallid nervous youth and you answer that you are well now i ask you if your reserve toward your schoolfellows arises from pride and i hope you will answer no be encouraged father said sebastian it is neither pride nor ill-health but sorrow i have a dream which frightens me and yet it is not a terror when a little boy I had such visions. Ah? Two or three times I was lost in the woods, following this phantom. Gilbert looked at the speaker in alarm. It was thus, father dear. I would be playing with the other children of the village when I saw nothing. But when I left them, I heard the rustle of a silk dress, as if someone wearing it were going away from me. I would thrust out my hands to seize it, but grasp nothing but air. But as the sound diminished, the vision appeared more and more distinct. This cloudy vapor would gradually assume a human shape. It was a woman's, who glided rather than walked, and grew the more clear as it was buried in the woody depths. A, a strange, weird, irresistible spell drew me on in the woman's steps. I pursued her with extended arms, mute like she was. Often I tried to call her, but my lips would not emit a sound. I pursued without ever overtaking, until the prodigy announcing her coming was reproduced for her departure. She became misty and faded away. Spent with weariness, I would drop on the sward where she had disappeared. Pitou would find me there, sometimes not till the following day. Gilbert looked at the youth with increasing disquiet. His fingers were fixed on his pulse. Sebastian seemed to understand his father's feelings. "'Do not be uneasy about it,' said he. "'I know that it is a phantasm.' "'What did this woman look like?' "'Majestic!' as a queen have you seen her lately i have seen her here 
that is in the garden reserved for the teachers i saw her glide from our grounds into that garden and one day when master berardier pleased with my composition asked me to state a favor i got leave to stroll in this garden and she appeared to me strange hallucination thought gilbert yet not so remarkable in the child of a mesmeric medium who do you think this woman is my mother gilbert turned pale and clasped his hand to his heart as though to staunch a reopening wound but this is all a dream and i am almost as crazed as you it may be all a dream said the youth with pensive eye but the reality of the dream exists i have seen the lady alive in a magnificent equipage drawn by four horses in satyry woods near versailles on the last holiday when we were taken out there i nearly swooned on seeing her i do not know why for she could not be my mother who is dead and she is the same as the vision he remarked the giddiness of his father who ran his hand over his brow and he was frightened by his white face i see i am wrong to tell you such nonsense he said oh no speak all you can on the subject and we shall try to cure you responded the doctor why i am born to musing it takes up half my time i love this ghost though it avoids me and sometimes seems to repulse me do not expel it i should else be all alone when you are on your travels or return to america i hope we shall not part he said to his boy whom he embraced for i want to take you on my journeys was my mother fair inquired the youth very was answered in the doctor's stifled voice and did she love you as much as i do continued the child sebastian never speak her name to me cried the physician kissing him a last time and bounding out of the garden instead of following him the boy dropped on a bench disconsolate in the yard gilbert found billet and pitou refreshed by the feast of the principal to whom the doctor recommended special care of his son and the three men got into the hack again end of chapter fifteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter sixteen of taking the bastille by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain the physician for the state on the way back to paris gilbert stopped at st ouen to see necker's daughter he had a suspicion that the financier had not gone to brussels as everybody was led to think indeed it was at madame de stael's country house that he was concealed awaiting events he made no difficulty in supplying his friend with a letter of introduction to the king armed with this the doctor leaving billet and pitou in a pretty hotel of paris 
where the farmer usually stayed, hurried to Versailles. It was half-past ten, but Versailles could not sleep now. It was agitated about how the king would take the insult of the Bastille being captured. It was not a slap in the face like Mirabeau's refusal to obey the order of the king to vacate the assembly rooms, but a death-blow. The palace and surrounding sites were packed with troops, but Gilbert managed to reach the bull's-eye chamber where Necker's letter passed him into the royal presence. The doctor examined in silence the pilot given to France in stormy weather, whom he had not seen for many long years. For the physiognomist who had studied under Lavate, the magnetizer who had read the future with Balsamo, the philosopher who had meditated with Rousseau, the traveller who had reviewed many peoples, all in this short, stout man signified degeneracy, impotence, and ruin. When Louis had read the introduction, he dismissed all attendants with a wave of the hand not devoid of majesty. "'It is true,' said he, "'that you are the author of the memoirs on administration and politics, which much struck me. You are young for such a work.' I am thirty-two, but study and misfortune age a man. Treat me as an old one. Why are you so slow to present yourself to me? Because I had no need to speak to your majesty, but I could freely and easily write. But you ought to have been informed that I was kindly toward you, observed the monarch suspiciously. "'Your Majesty alludes to my audacity in requesting him, "'in token of having read my work with gratification, "'to show a light in his own study window. "'I saw that, and was gladdened. "'But Your Majesty offered a reward, and I want none. "'Anyway, you come like a true soldier when the action is on. "'But I am not used to meet those who do not haste when recompense is offered.' I deserve none. Born a Frenchman, loving my land, jealous of its prosperity, confounding my individuality with that of its thirty millions of men, I work for them in toiling for myself. A selfish man deserves no recompense. Excuse me. You had another reason. You thought the state of events serious, and held back— for a more serious one your majesty guesses correctly i like frankness said the king reddening for he was nervous so you predicted ruin for the sovereign and you wanted to be out of the reach of the flying splinters no sire since i hastened toward the danger you come fresh from necker and you naturally speak like him. Where is he? Ready at hand to obey your orders. All for the best, for I shall require him, returned Louis with a sigh. In politics, nobody should sulk. A plan may be good and fail from accidents. Sire, your majesty reasons admirably said gilbert coming to his aid but the main thing now is to see into the future clearly 
as a physician i speak bluntly at crises do you attach much importance to the riot of yesterday it is not riot but revolution and would you have me treat with rebels and murderers their taking the bastille by force was an act of rebellion their slaying of lunai losma and flacella murder they should be held apart those who stormed the bastille were heroes those who murdered those gentlemen butchers you are right sir said the king his lips blanching after a transient blush and perspiration appearing on his brow you are indeed a physician or rather a surgeon for you cut into the tender flesh but let us return to the subject you are dr gilbert who wrote those articles sire i consider it as great happiness that my name is retained in your memory it must not have sounded new when spoken a week ago in your hearing i mean that when i was arrested and put in the bastille i always understood that no arrest is made of any importance without the king being advised you in the bastille cried the astonished king here is the order to lock me up put in prison six days ago by the royal order i was released by the grace of the people at three o'clock this day did not your majesty hear the cannons they broke the doors down to let me out huh. i should be glad if i might say the cannon was not fired on royalty at the same time as the bastille thus the king muttered oh sire do not take a prison as the emblem of the monarchy say on the contrary that you are glad the bastille is taken for i trust no such injustice as i was the victim of will be henceforth committed in the name of the ruler who is kept ignorant of it but there must be some cause for your arrest none that i am aware of sire i was arrested as soon as i landed and imprisoned that is all there is in it really sir said the monarch mildly is there not selfishness in your dilating on your troubles when i want my own dealt with i only need a word did your majesty have anything to do with my arrest i was unaware of your return to this kingdom i am happy for this reply i may loudly say that your majesty is defamed when evil is attributed to you and cite myself as example you put balm on the wound doctor said the other smiling oh sire i will liberally anoint it and i will cure it i promise but you must strongly wish the healing done but before pledging yourself too deeply i should like you to notice the note on the prison record the king frowned to read at the queen's request have you incurred the queen's disfavor he inquired 
sire i am sure that her majesty knows me less than yourself but you must have committed some misdeed for people are not put in the bastille for nothing <laughs> several in this situation have come out if you run over your life i will do so out loud but do not be uneasy it will not take long since sixteen i have toiled without repose the pupil of rousseau the companion of joseph balsamo the friend of lafayette and washington since i quitted france i have not a fault to reproach myself with not a wrongful deed since heaven gave me the charge of bodies i have shed my blood for mankind and staunched its flow in others thousands live to bless my labors in america you worked with the innovators and propagate their principles by your writings yes sire i forgot this claim on the gratitude of monarchs and peoples this silenced the king sire you know my life now i have offended and injured nobody queen or beggar and i humbly ask your majesty why i was imprisoned i will speak to the queen about it do you believe that the warrant to arrest and imprison came directly from her majesty i do not believe this i rather presume that her majesty countersigned it but when a queen approves she commands countess of charny read the king on the record sheet is it she who wanted you imprisoned why what have you done to poor charny before this morning i never heard of any lady of that title charny muttered the king musing virtue goodness chastity in person you see they have put me in prison in the name of the christian graces remarked gilbert laughing oh i will have this cleared up said the king and ringing the bell he bade the servant to bring the countess of charny into his presence end of chapter sixteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Seventeen of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Countess of Charny. Gilbert had retired into a window recess, while the king paced the bull's-eye hall, called on account of a round window in the wall, thinking now of public matters, then of his visitor's persistence, though nothing but news from Paris ought to have enchained him suddenly the door opened and the lady entered dressed in the extreme of the showy and fantastic fashion of marie antoinette and her court she was lovely this countess charny with a peerless figure and her hand was aristocratic to the utmost with which she played with a small cane she andrea tavernay muttered gilbert involuntarily shrinking behind the curtains my lady i ask your presence for a little information began the monarch seeing nothing of gilbert's emotion i am ready to satisfy your majesty 
The voice attracted the doctor, who came a little forward. A week ago or so, a blank letter under the royal seal was delivered to Minister Necker, went on the king, for the arrest. Gilbert had his eye on the lady, who was pale, feverish, and fretful, as if bent under the weight of a secret. The warrant was applied for by your ladyship and countersigned by the queen. I say this to refresh your memory. Why do you not say something, Countess? It is true, your majesty, she faltered in a feverish abstraction. I wrote for the letter, filled up the blanks, and the queen backed it. Will you please tell me what crime the person committed for whom the measure was taken? demanded Louis. Sire, I may not do that, but I shall say the crime was great. Then you should do so to the object, continued the king. What you refuse the king, Louis XVI, you cannot, Dr. Gilbert. He stepped aside to discover the doctor, who opened the curtains and appeared as pale as the staggering lady. She tossed her head backwards as if going to swoon, and only kept her footing by aid of a table. She leaned on it in dull despair, like one whom a snake-bite was filling with poison. "'My lady, let me put the question to you which the king addressed,' said Gilbert. Andrea's lips moved, but no sound struggled forth. "'What did I do to you, lady, that your order threw me into a hideous dungeon?' The voice made her leap, as if it tore the very soul in her. Suddenly, lowering her cold gaze on him, she replied, "'Sir, I do not know you.' But while she was speaking, the mesmerist stared at her with so much fixedness, and his glance was so charged with invincible boldness, that her own lost luster under his. "'Countess!' "'You see what this abuse of the royal signature leads to,' gently reproved the monarch. "'You confess you do not know this gentleman, who is a renowned physician, a learned man, whom you can blame in no way.' Andrea darted a withering glance at Gilbert, who bore it calmly and proudly. "'I am saying that it is wicked to visit on the innocent the faults of another.' I know you have not a bad heart, he hastened to add, for he was trembling lest he offended his wife's favorite, and that you would not pursue anybody in your hatred unless he merited it. But you will understand that such mistakes must not be made in the future. Doctor, he went on, turning to the other hearer, these things are the fault of our period rather than of persons. We are born in corruption, and we shall die in it, but we are going to try to make matters better, in which work I expect you to join us, dear doctor. He stopped, thinking he had said enough to please both parties. If he had spoken thus at a parliamentary session, he would have been applauded. But his audience of two personal enemies little heeded his conciliatory philosophy. But, recommenced Gilbert, 
while not knowing me you knew another gilbert whose crime weighs upon his namesake it is not my place to question the lady will your majesty deign to inquire of her ladyship what this infamous man did countess you cannot refuse so just a request the queen must know since she authorized the arrest said andrea evasively but it is not enough that the queen should be convinced said the sovereign it is necessary that the king also should know the queen is what she is but i am the king sire the gilbert for whom the warrant was intended committed a horrible crime sixteen years ago will your majesty please inquire what age this gilbert is to-day he may be thirty-two replied andrea sire then the crime was done by a boy not a man and does he not deserve some indulgence who has for sixteen years deplored his boyish crime you seem to know him has he committed no other crime than this sin of youth demanded the king i am less indulgent to him than others but i can say that he reproaches himself with none other only with having dipped his pen in poison and written odious libels sire please ask my lady if the real cause of the arrest and committal of this gilbert was not to enable his enemies particularly one enemy to get possession of a certain casket containing papers possibly compromising a great lady of the court andrea shuddered from head to foot countess what casket is this inquired the king who noticed the plain pallor and agitation of the lady no more shifting and subterfuges cried gilbert feeling that he was master of the situation enough falsehoods on both sides i am gilbert of the crime the libels the casket and you the real great lady of the court i take the king as the judge accept him and we will tell our judge under heaven and the king will decide tell his majesty what you please but i shall say nothing more for i do not know you responded the haughty lady and the casket you do not know about that no more than of you but she shook with the effort to make this denial like a statue rocking at the base beware said the doctor you cannot have forgotten that i am the pupil of balsamo cogliostro the magician who has transmitted to me the power he had over you once only will you answer the question my casket then lifting his hand full of threatening he thundered nature of steel heart of adamant bend melt shatter under the irresistible pressure of my will you shall speak andrea and none king or any powers less than heavens shall subtract you from my sway you shall unfold your mind to the august witness and he shall read what you hid in the black recesses of your soul 
sire you shall know all through her who refuses to speak sleep andrea tavernay countess of charnay sleep and speak for i will it hardly were these words uttered before the woman stopped short and beginning a scream held out her arms for support as if struck by blindness finding none she fell into the king's arms and he placed her in a chair ha huh! exclaimed he trembling like herself i have heard about hypnotism but never saw an exhibition is not this magnetic sleep to which you oblige her to succumb doctor yes my lord take her hand and ask her why she had me arrested astounded by the scene louis receded but interested he did as directed as andrea resisted the magnetizer touched the crown of her head with his palm saying speak i will it she sighed and her arms fell her head sank back and she wept hug i hate you she hissed hate away but speak so countess said the king you wanted to arrest and imprison the doctor yes and the casket how could i leave that in his hands muttered the lady in a hollow voice tell me about that said the king forgetting etiquette and kneeling beside the countess i learned that gilbert who had in sixteen years been twice back in france purposed another voyage to settle here chief of police crosny informed me that he had on a previous return bought an estate at villers cotterets that his farmer enjoyed his trust and i suspected that the casket with his papers was at his house how could you suspect that i i went to mesmer's and had myself put into a trance when my own medium i wrote down the revelations i wanted wonderful exclaimed the sovereign i went to chief crosny and he lent me his best man one wolfstep who brought me the casket where is it cried gilbert no lying where is my casket in my rooms at versailles said andrea trembling nervously and bursting into tears wolfstep is waiting for me here by appointment since eleven twelve was striking where is he standing in the waiting-room leaning on the mantel-shelf the casket is on the table before him oh haste count charny who was not to return before to-morrow will be back to-night on account of the events he is at sever now get wolfstop away for fear my lord will see him your majesty hears this casket belongs to me will the king please order it to be returned to me instantly placing a screen before the countess 
Louis called the officer on duty and gave him orders what to do. This curiosity of a monarch whose throne was being undermined to a purely physical problem would make those smile who expected him to be engrossed with politics. But he concentrated himself on this private speculation and returned to see the mesmerizer and the medium. In the mesmeric slumber, Andrea's wondrous beauty was displayed in its entire splendor. She, who had in her youth enthralled Louis XV, now enchanted his successor. Gilbert turned his head away, sighing. He could not resist the prompting to give his adored this degree of supernal beauty, and now more unhappy than Pygmalion, for he knew how insensible was the lovely statue. He was frightened by his own work. Gilbert knew how to own his ignorance, like all superior men. He knew what he could do, but not the wherefore. "'Where did you study the art? Under Mesmer?' asked the king. "'I saw the most astonishing phenomena ten years ago before that German came into France. My master was a more amazing man, superior to any one you can name.' for I have seen him execute surgical operations of incredible daring. No science was unknown to him, but I ought not to utter his name before your majesty. I should like to hear it, though it was Satan's himself. My lord, you honor me almost with a friend's confidence in speaking thus. My master was Baron Balsamo, afterwards Count Cogliostro. "'That charlatan!' exclaimed Louis, blushing, for he could not help remembering the plot of the diamond necklace, in which Cogliostro had figured as friend of Cardinal Rohan, and consequently enemy of Marie Antoinette. The king believed his wife, but the world thought that she had participated in the fraud on the court jewellers. We have related the story according to our lights in the volume of this series entitled The Queen's Necklace. "'Charlatan,' repeated Gilbert warmly. "'You are right. The name comes from the Italian word meaning to patter, to talk freely, and no one was more ready than Cogliostro to talk instructively, where the seed would fall on fruitful ground.' "'This Cogliostro whom you praise was a great enemy of kings,' observed Louis. "'Rather say of queens.' retorted Gilbert. "'In the trial of Prince Rohan, his conduct was equivocal.' "'Sire, then, as ever, he fulfilled his mission to mankind. He may have acted mistakenly then, but I studied under the physician and philosopher, not under the politician.' "'Well, well,' said the king, suffering under the wound to his person and his pride we are forgetting the countess who is in pain i will awaken her presently for here is the casket coming in fact the messenger was arriving with the small box which he handed to the king he nodded his satisfaction and the officer went out sire it is my casket but I would remark that it contains papers damning to the countess, and... 
carry it away unopened sir said the monarch coldly do not awaken the lady here i detest shrieks groans noise she will awaken wherever you suggest her removal in the queen's apartments will be best how long will it take ten minutes awaken in fifteen minutes ordered the mesmerizer to the lady two guardsmen entered and carried out the countess seated on the chair my lady fainted here said the king to the officer bear her to the queen what can i do for you dr gilbert he asked when they were alone i wish to be honorary house physician to your majesty it is a position which will do nobody umbrage and is more of trust than emolument and lustre granted good-bye dr gilbert remind me affectionately to necker bring me supper he added for nothing could make the king forget a meal End of chapter 17. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 18 of Taking the Bastille by Alexander Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Queen at Bay. While the king was learning to fight revolution like a philosopher, and recreate himself with a spiritualistic seance the queen was rallying the combative around her in her rooms she sat at a table with priests courtiers generals and her ladies surrounding her at the doorways young officers full of ardor and courage rejoiced in the riots which gave them a chance to show their military gifts as at a tourney under view of their queens of beauty the queen was no longer the sweet girl whom we saw in our work entitled balsamo the magician or the fair princess who went to mesmer's baths with princess lambaya but the haughty and imperious queen who was neither marie antoinette nor queen of france but the austrian eagles she looked up as prince lambesque arrived dusty splashed his boots torn and his sabre bent so as not to be sheathed properly well my lord she said you come from paris what are the people doing killing and burning from madness or malice from ferocity nay prince she replied after meditating the people are not ferocious hide nothing from me is it delirium or hate i believe it is hate at the point of delirium against me what does it matter said drew breeze stepping forward the people may hate any one saving your majesty the queen did not notice the flattery the people replied lambesque are acting in hatred of all above them good that is the truth at last exclaimed the royal lady resolutely i feel that it is so i am speaking as a soldier continued the cavalrist 
speak so what is to be done nothing what cried she emboldened by the protest from among the gold-laced coat and gold-hilted sword-wearers nothing do you a lorraine prince tell this to the queen of france when the people are killing and burning a fresh murmur this time approbative hailed her speech she turned embraced all the gathering with flaring eyes and tried to distinguish whose flamed the most brightly thinking they would be the most loyal do nothing repeated the prince for the parisians will cool down if not irritated they are warlike only when teased why give them the honors of a war and the risks of a battle keep tranquil and in three days paris will not talk about the matter but the bastille shut the doors and trap all those who are inside some laughs sounded among the group take care prince said the lady now you are going to the other extreme and too much encouraging me with a thoughtful mien she went over to where her favorite the countess of polignac was in a brown study on a lounge the news had frightened the lady she smiled only when the queen stood before her and that was a faint and sickly smile like a wilted lily what do you say to this countess nothing and she shook her head with unspeakable discouragement heaven help us our dashing diana is afraid said the queen bending over her we want our intrepid countess charny here it seems to me that we need her to cheer us up the countess was going out when the king sent for her explained an attendant then only did marie antoinette perceive the isolation and stillness around her the recent strange and unheard-of events had hit versailles hard making the hardest hearts tender more by astonishment than fear the sovereign understood that she must lift up these disheartened spirits has nobody suggests any advice i shall act on my own impulse she said the people are not wicked but let us stray everybody drew nearer they hate us because they do not know us let us go up to them to punish interposed the voice for they know we are their masters and to doubt us is a crime oh baron she said recognizing Bezenval, do you come to give us good advice i have given it the king will punish but as a kind father does he loveth well who chasteneth soundly replied the noble are you of this thinking prince she asked of lambesque the populace have committed assassinations which they call retaliation observed a sweet fresh voice which made the queen turn yes but that is where there ever lies my dear lambaille so we shall be indulgent 
"'But,' resumed the princess with her bland voice, "'before one talks of punishment, one ought to be sure of winning the victory, methinks.' A general outcries rose against this piece of good sense from the noble lips. "'Not vanquish with the Swiss troops and the Germans and the lifeguards.' "'Do you doubt the army and the nobility?' exclaimed a young man in Bershany Hussian uniform. "'Have we deserved such a slur, barren mind, royal lady, that the king can put in battle array forty thousand men, throw them into Paris by the four sides, and destroy the town? Forty thousand proven soldiers are worth half a million of Parisian rioters.' The young lieutenant, emboldened by the mouthpiece of his brother officers, stopped short on seeing how far his enthusiasm had carried him but the queen had caught enough to feel the scope of his outburst do you know the state of affairs sir she inquired i was in the riots yesterday was his confused reply then do not fear to speak let us have details the lieutenant stepped out though he colored up my lords of Bezenval and Lambesque know them better than I, he said. Continue, young sir. It pleases me to hear them from you. Under whose orders are these forty thousand men? The superiors are the two gentlemen I named, under whom rule Prince Conde, Narbon Fritzlar, and Salkenheim the bark of artillery on montmartre could lay that district in ashes in six hours and its signal to fire vincennes would answer from four quarters as many corps of ten thousand troops could march in and paris would not hold out twenty-four hours this is plain speaking at least and a clear plan what do you say to this prince lambesque that the young gentleman is a perfect general at least he is a soldier who does not despair said the queen seeing the lieutenant turned pale with anger thank your majesty replied the latter i do not know what your majesty will decide but i beg her to count me with the other forty thousand men including the captains as ready to die for her with these words he courteously saluted the general, who had almost insulted him. This courtesy struck the queen more than the pledge of devotedness. "'Your name, sir,' said she. "'Viscount Charny,' he responded. "'Charny,' repeated Marie Antoinette, blushing in spite of herself. "'Any relation to Count Charny?' "'I am his brother, lady.' bowing more lowly than before. "'I might have known that you were one of my most faithful servitors,' said she, recovering from her tremor and looking round with confidence. "'By the first words you spoke, I thank you, Viscount. How comes this to be the first time I have the pleasure of seeing you at court?' "'My eldest brother, head of the family, ordered me to stay with the army.' and i have only been in versailles twice during seven years on the regimental roll-call she let a long look dwell on his face 
"'You resemble your brother,' she remarked. "'I shall scold him for having waited for you to present yourself at court.' Electrified by this greeting to their young spokesman, the officers exaggerated their devotion to the royal cause, and from each knot burst expressions of heroism able to conquer the whole of France. These cries flattered Marie Antoinette's secret aspirations, and she meant to profit by them. She saw herself, in perspective, the leader of an immense army, and rejoiced over the victory against the civilians who dared to rebel. Around her, ladies and gentlemen, wild with youth, love, and confidence, cheered their brilliant hussars, heavy dragoons, terrible switzers, and thunderous cannoneers, and laughed at the home-made spikes fastened on clothes-poles, without dreaming that on these coarse spears were to be carried the noblest heads of the realm. "'I am more afraid of a pike than a musket,' murmured Princess Lambaya. "'Because it is uglier, my dear Teresa,' said the queen. "'But you need not be alarmed. Our Parisian pikemen are not worth the famous spearmen of Moat.' and the good Swiss of this day carry guns much superior to the spears of their forefathers. Thank God they can fire true with them. "'I answer for that,' said Besenval. Lady Polignac's disheartenment had no effect beyond saddening her royal mistress. The enthusiasm increased among the rest of the gathering, but was damped when the king, coming in abruptly, called for his supper." The simple word chilled the assemblage. She hoped that he did it to show how cool he was. But, in fact, the son of St. Louis was hungry. That was all. The king was served on a small table in the queen's sitting-room. While she was trying to revive the fire, he devoured. The officers did not think this gastronomical exercise worthy of a hero, and looked on as little respectful as they dared to be. The queen blushed, and her fretfulness was displayed in all her movements. Her fine, nervy, and aristocratic nature could not understand the rule of matter over mind. She went up to him, asking what orders he had to give. "'Oh, orders,' he said with his mouth full. "'Will you not be our Egeria in the pinch?' "'My lord, Numa was a peaceful king.' "'But at present we think a belligerent one is wanted, "'and if your majesty wants to model himself on an antique pattern, "'be Romulus, if not Tarquin.' "'Are these gentlemen all bellicose, too?' "'He asked with a tranquillity almost beatific. "'But his eyes were bloodshot with the animation of the meal, "'and they thought it was courage. "'Yes, sire, war,' they chorused, "'Gentlemen, you please me greatly by showing that I may rely upon you in case of need. "'But I have a council and an appetite. "'The former advises me what to do, the other what I have done to do.' "'And he chuckled while he handed the officer of the king's mouth "'the picked bones and chewed rejecta of his repast on the gold-fringed napkin.' A murmur of choler and stupor ran through the ranks of the nobles who were eager to shed their blood for the monarch. The queen turned aside and stamped her foot. Prince Lambesque came up to her, saying, 
your majesty sees that the king thinks like me that to wait is the best course it is prudence and though not my strong card the best to keep in hand for the final rubber in the game we play yes my lord it is a highly necessary virtue replied she biting her lip till the blood came she was roused from her torpor by the sweet voice of countess jules polignac who came up with her sister-in-law diana to propose that as she and her party were hated by the people as the favorites of the queen they should be allowed to go out of the kingdom at first the queen would not hear of the sacrifice but she saw that fear was at the bottom of it and that the king's aunt adelaide had suggested it you are right she answered you run dangers from the rage of a people who are uncurbed i cannot accept the devotion which prompts you to stay i wish i order you to depart she was choking with emotions mastering her in spite of her heroism when the king's voice suddenly sounded in her ear he was at the dessert madam he said some one is in your rooms to see you i am told sire she answered abjuring all thoughts but of royal dignity you have orders to give here are lords lambesque besenval and the marshal duke broglie what orders for your generals what do you think of this matter duke he inquired hesitatingly of the old broglie sire if you retire your troops the parisians will say they daunted them if you let them stand they will have to defeat them lambesque shook his head but besenval and the queen applauded command the forward march went on the duke very well since you all wish it let it be march said the king but at this moment a note was passed to the queen who read do not be in a hurry i await an audience it was count charny's writing is my lord charny waiting she asked of the messenger yes dusty and i believe bloody with hard riding please to await me a moment said the queen de broglie and the others as she hurried into her private apartments end of chapter eighteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia